So today I wanted to talk about what we, um, so what we would try to do in the Buddhist path, uh, the Dharma path, however you hold that. So just to give you uh, an idea, what I want to talk about is really, it boils down to really three trainings, they're called, oftentimes. And meditation is one of them. And I think in our culture, um, that's the one that really gets the most emphasis, probably for a variety of, of obvious reasons. But I think for the one reason, I think in many ways is um, the explosion of mindfulness. And that mindfulness as a practice has gotten, um, gained so much momentum. When I was practicing, when I first learned the practice 20 some odd years ago, people didn't say mindful or be mindful of this or mindfulness of that. In fact, even on insight retreats, they didn't always use that term so much. They would say vipassana or insight or awareness. And I think that many people come into, whether it's a Buddhist retreat or a Dharma group or an insight group, usually coming in with their interest is much more in meditation practices and the benefits of meditation practices and the development of meditation practices and how do you do it and am I doing it right and all of these questions. And um, when we look at the Dharma, which is what the, the Buddha taught, he taught meditation, but there's actually more components to it than that. So I want to talk about that a little bit this afternoon of what does that look like and what are some other things that we want to consider that would be important. And there's really three big ones, and I'll just say what they are and try to unpack them a little bit more, is that there's a training around meditation, meditation practices, um, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. You maybe have noticed that it takes effort to do this. You don't just close your eyes and just bing, a mindfulness arises. It's actually kind of, I think, a lot, a lot of work. So there's an effort component to meditation, and then there's mindfulness itself, awareness to be aware. And then there's the, the, the collectedness or the stability that arises out of those two things. So that's one set, meditation training. There's also a whole emphasis on um, hard work to pin down, but I think the word that I use is uh, ethics or integrity, to live with integrity that part of uh, meditation and part of dharma is to be, um, be kind, to watch our intentions, to be kind and aware of how our language and our speech affects people, to watch our actions that we don't cause a lot of harm through what we do or what we say or how we live. And that doesn't usually get addressed so much in, in a mindfulness practice or a mindfulness training curriculum if you've done that type of stuff before. And so there's really a behavioral component, I would even say, that there's a meditation practice, there's a behavioral component. And I don't know about you, but when I meditate, one of the, things that, one of the first things that arises in my mind is anything that I've done recently that I don't feel so good about. Maybe I said something to somebody, a friend, a partner, or someone in my family, Maybe we had an exchange that I didn't feel good about when I sit down and meditate. Guess what? Be like, oh man, I can't believe you said that. Or anything that recently I've done behaviorally that I don't that doesn't sit right with me. It bothers me a little bit. 
when we look at things like anger, Lisa said you guys have been talking about anger the last couple of weeks. One of the interesting things about anger, the research around anger, one of the problems with anger is that typically people report that after they have an angry episode, they got angry and they did or said something, that we oftentimes feel regretful about what we did or say, or we feel guilty about what we've done or said when we became angry. So where was the mindfulness when I was angry? Well, <laughs> I forgot about that one that time. Oops. And then we have opportunity for compassion and forgiveness around these things. Uh, so there's an emphasis, a big emphasis in, 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 in the Buddhist framework around uh, living with integrity. Being honest, being kind, being generous. Really, I mean, I think just safe to say just being a good person. And I think that, I know that for me and many people that I've worked with over the years is that one of the things that I think inspires people to um, practice something like meditation is that we have either recognized maybe one of two things. Uh, maybe we've recognized a sense of goodness in our own life, a goodness in our own heart, a goodness in our own way that we relate to the world that we would like to somehow draw more of that out. We think, oh, I'd like to have more access to that. Kind of maybe what you were saying earlier. Like, I, there seems to be something really good in here. How can I... Is there anything I can do to pull more of that out? That's one, one, one way. The other way is that oftentimes people maybe have recognized that life has not really gone as planned. Maybe there's been a, a lot of disappointment or what feels like more than your fair share of disappointment, hardship, loss, confusion about yourself, your life, the world, and maybe we start to look for a spiritual or another way of relating to life or to reality. So we have this meditation practices, we have behavioral ways of dealing with life. And then we have this, what they often call the wisdom component, or understanding, uh, being actually very realistic about the limitations of the human experience, being realistic about our expectations. And really this is often identified as the philosophical framework of um, what the Buddha taught. That there was actually a worldview that the Buddha spoke of and taught about. And so this begins by just the conceptual mind or how we view reality, how we view life, um, and how we... Um, how our conditioning affects the way that we grow up and live in the world and do what we do. And it really begins by looking at uh, the Four Noble Truths, as they're called. But that's such a... I have a hard time with that word, Noble Truths. Um, with capital N, capital T. Uh, as if anybody has a cornerstone on the truth. So what's true for me and what's true for you actually might be quite different. So I think that some of that language is problematic. But to just give you a little bit of an overview of what, what the Buddha awoke to and how he defined what's called the Four Noble Truths, is, it's really very simple. And the first one is that, you know, the truth of dukkha, uh, that life is hard for everybody, that we all are born into a, a world, into a body, into a family, into a culture, into a gender, into a race, into a... Uh, we're born into this thing, and there's pain. 
And nobody gets through life without some amount of it. Uh, but we don't oftentimes acknowledge that. So there's a way in which I think not so much about truth, but more about just being honest about the difficulties in your life. Right? And not to be in denial about that, but to, to really, in a, in a very real way, looking at this first reflection of, of what is it that's hard for you? Where is, where is the struggle in your internal life? And actually admitting that there is one. So there's this honesty piece around that. And I think much of the practice, I, I find, is just coming to terms with that. The, the, what I call the, um, the limitations of my own humanity. And this dukkha, this dissatisfaction um, component, struggle, vulnerability, pain, there's a lot of ways to look at it. Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with the worldview of, of Buddhist practice or the Dharma, is that, the, is that life is actually this both-and thing. That there is actually a lot of joy and beauty and wonderful, great things about life. And there's a lot of pain and tragedy and loss. And these are realities that are true in the world. Um, and you don't have to look too far to get a sense of that, do you? So what, do you, what are we going to do about that? What's the level of acceptance we have towards that? And I think in a very real way, uh, one of the things about this first noble truth that I find to be very important around my behavior and my integrity, I think it's actually a great way to be inspired to live with more compassion. When I see the hardship and the loss and the, the, the things that my friends and the people I encounter struggle with, it makes me want to um, be more generous and more kind and more compassionate. Um, so there's a way in which we can really associate this first truth, I think, as a way, uh, as a call to things like integrity and compassion and kindness and generosity. Um, which I think not a lot of people come to that understanding if we look around and look at the current world stage. It's not something that everybody is striving for, which also can become frustrating and upsetting. I know that for me at times in my life, I've, I've looked around and I'm like, am I the only one who's even trying? <laughs> you know? So we can feel that way sometimes. And then this, this second noble truth is really um, is where, the, where, he, where, where suffering fits. Sometimes Buddhism gets a bad rap because there's a lot of suffering that's talked about. But really, I think it's misunderstood. It's not about suffering. It's just about acknowledging the ways that you do suffer and that we all suffer around dukkha, around difficulty. That life, part of life is acknowledging that there's been some suffering and there probably will be some more. And uh, we want to be able to relate to that in a way and, and be less reactive. So this craving or this tanha is that we come into contact with something that's painful or difficult and then we react to it. We want to fix it. We want to control it. We want to get rid of it. We want to explain it away. We want to over-intellectualize it away. We want to, with our conceptual mind, we want to fix, control, avoid, change. Kind of want to outsmart it. Oh, it's just smart, more smart and more clever. I could figure this out and I wouldn't have any pain and difficulty in my life. <laughs> Probably not going to work. Right? And so this uh, third truth this really, is really, really where we're looking, really what we're looking for. I think it's what we're all looking for, is to liberate ourselves from mind states, difficult emotions. 
And I would argue that even in a 30-minute meditation, uh, probably everybody here had one little moment of liberation, whether you caught it or not. But maybe you noticed you were struggling with something in your mind, and you said, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let that go and come back. And, re and, and then you had a little liberation moment. You didn't do that. You didn't suffer about an argument that happened last week. You let it go, and you came back. And so I think, actually, this awakened heart-mind that they speak about, I don't think it's really that sort of uh, elaborate or fireworks of an experience. I know that when terms like enlightenment, the Buddha was an enlightened being, carries with it such a high degree of expectation that we sometimes might give it more privilege than it was meant to have. And I think that every human being has moments in their lives where things just make sense in a different way. Maybe we have an aha moment about something. Maybe we just don't have the backseat driver going all the time. And we arrive into a state of mind where we feel present and we feel at ease. And Maybe we would call that meditation. Maybe we don't have to necessarily call it anything. Maybe it's just part of our human potential is that we have well-being actually installed in our body. And this is where the East and West thing, I think, becomes very diametrically opposed. Because if we look at our culture, we are always looking at what's wrong and how to fix it. You go to the psychiatrist, you go to, oh, I'm sad. Okay, well, here's a pill. You shouldn't feel sad. We'll fix it for you. Uh, we over-pathologize. I feel so... I worked with teenagers for a long time, and they're the most over-diagnosed. The American teenager is the most over-diagnosed population of people on the planet, where every mental state... Every difficult emotion is some sort of disorder. They make up like, someone was telling me there was a study years ago, like where they come up with like four new disorders a month. You know? And so what we've done is anything that's even mildly unpleasant in the mind or in the emotion is some sort of problem. You're angry, that's a problem. You're sad, that's a problem. You're a little depressed, that's a problem. You, you have some grief, that's a problem. Got to fix it. So we really are kind of a little bit geared towards a paradigm where we're, we're looking at how bad people do. We study pathology and we study these things. As a culture, that's kind of what we've done. But Buddhism was really interested in how good people can do. Like, how do people... The whole Dharma is, how well can you do? And what are the ingredients? What are the practices? What are the things that allow human beings to flourish? And this is the same stuff that the Greek philosophers talked about. All different schools of philosophy and religion have been talking about this. It's not just unique to Buddhism. How well can you do? How happy can we become, realistically? What do you have to do to do that? You know, that if joy and sorrow came on the hard drive, which one do you want to pay more attention to? Which one do you want to bring out? you want to focus on everything that's going wrong in your life in the world? Or do you want to focus on everything that's going right in the world, that's going right in your life? And I think that one of the things that I've noticed about myself in this conversation is I have a hard time giving myself credit for those things because I expect too much. We put unrealistic demands on ourselves. 
and we maybe put so many unrealistic demands on ourselves that we'll actually never be able to live up to them because they're so lofty and unrealistic. And a lot of the demands aren't ones you came up with. They were given to you by your family and your culture and your upbringing. And a lot of times we don't even know where these things come from. Why do I think I need to be perfect all the time? You know? And so this is really where I think the whole point, why would we want to do something like meditation, is so that we can have this liberation, freedom, I don't like the word enlightenment because I don't think it really uh, it doesn't translate well, I don't think, because it seems too like Buddhist heaven to me. But really awakened, how do we become awake? How do we become awake? How do we become aware? of our potential and our liabilities and what is it that we can realistically hope to get out of something like a meditation practice. And so if we do those kind of three things, A, being honest about the difficulties and challenges in your life, becoming more aware of what causes that, and then learning how to unhook or how to step away from some of these things, then we arrive into what's called the Eightfold Path, which I really wanted to talk more about, but I got, it's hard to talk about the Eightfold Path without getting stuck on the Four Noble Truths. It's what makes teaching Buddhism so hard because of all the lists. So, so actually we could say, if, if you were to ask somebody, well, what, what, what did the Buddha suggest? What was his primary suggestion for happiness in this lifetime? His suggestion was to cultivate the Eightfold Path. That's, he said, you should, this is what you should do. And so that first thing starts with right view, with right understanding, complete view, which is part of just the way that we relate to the world. Do we even understand or consider the, the, the first three truths of like, okay, life is hard. Okay, I got that one. I don't like that. I really don't like that. And I do all kinds of strange things to avoid that. Okay, and what is it that I can really do for myself? How can I live with integrity? How do I live with, with generosity and kindness and goodwill, compassion, gratitude, appreciation, forgiveness? I mean, there's a whole drop-down menu, right, of like all these really beautiful qualities that human beings can establish. Right? And so how do we incline ourselves in that particular direction? How do we live from that? And also not think that I have to be perfect and now on from every single moment of my life I need to be kind and compassionate and forgiving and grateful. It's like that. But how do I lean in that direction? That's the direction I want to lean in. And one Buddhist teaching, the Buddha talks about it very simply. He talks about a tree growing in a field. And if the tree leans to the west, it will fall to the west. And if it leans to the east, it will fall to the east. So which way do you lean? Where does your mind lean? Does it lean towards joy and contentment and understanding? Or does it lean towards blaming and criticism and contempt? And Probably it's more like a windy tree, right? We're just kind of like getting blown around all the time. But, but part of this, I think, is actually spending time and considering that. Like, what, what is actually important to you? And I think that one of the things that's being asked in this particular aspect of, of view or understanding, perception, 
what is our worldview, is really what, what do we value? What do you actually really value internally? Not like, well, I want to live in a nice neighborhood and have a nice partner, and, you know, not that kind of value, but what are qualities that, I, that, I, that are important to me? Is awareness important to me? Is kindness important to me? Is generosity important to me? Is understanding cooperation with other people, is that, is that something that's valuable to me? You know, these things are not things, this is not necessarily true for everybody. Some people could not be bothered with any of that. Some people value greed and they value competition and they value, um, you know, we don't want to assume that everybody feels the same way. And at the same time, if we do value these things, we do want to give ourselves some degree of credit and feel good about that. Feel good about, like, yeah, like, I really value some important things, some important qualities. And then that view, that perspective, what that does is, is the way that one leans in that direction is by our intention. So what is, how do we intend, what motivates my actions? Am I being motivated by greed? Am I being motivated by generosity? Am I being motivated by fear? Am I being motivated by trust? Right? And so when we think about intention, it's a big, big aspect of, of the Buddhist path. And really, on a psychological domain, it's really how one habituates. So habituation is, you know, I don't know about you, anybody here have any bad habits? <laughs> right? Those are learned. You, didn't get, you weren't born with bad habits. You habituate towards things. And one of the things that I think really makes it so hard um, about our, just the way our organism is designed, is we do have what's called a negative attention bias. So we're habituated towards kind of being alert uh, towards danger, pain, and trying to avoid those things. Because in nature, it's better to be safe than sorry. So in some ways, we're actually wired more towards really fear of pain. Um, and of course, we're we're, we're afraid of pain. But we can habituate to that to a point where we be become really, really anxious, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of the things that we're afraid of happening are imagined or made up. You ever been just going through your day, making up things to be afraid of that are going to happen and how you're going to fix them when they do? That's a, that's a very anxiety kind of mind. So part of mindfulness is great is, is really important because we can start to recognize some of the ways that we're habituated towards, towards rehearsing, towards anxiety, towards blaming, towards there's a lot of things that we're habituated towards. We don't want to create a bad attitude about ourselves for that, but the more we can recognize that we can lean in another direction. We can, with, through intention. And intention, of course, so important, but really not enough. Sometimes I notice in me, I have the best intention. And I have, let me tell you, world-class intentions. But my follow-through, not always so grand. You know, it's so hard to, you know. Just looking at a menu, it's like, you know, I'm going to get a cop salad, and then I end up with, like, uh, fries and a burger. I'm like, wait a minute, I, was, I wanted to eat healthy. And it's like, oops, I, I kind of dropped the ball on that one. But it's really, really hard to kind of have follow-through in these things, which is really where, where our actions come in and our behavior. How do we behave? 
So one thing I like about Buddhist practice that makes it so interesting is behavior doesn't start the moment we like pick something up or don't pick something up. Behavior actually starts right in the mind. Like thinking is actually a behavior. Worrying is a behavior. Planning is a behavior. You know, uh, thinking about doing something nice for your friend is a behavior. Right? So there's always, the mind's always up to some kind of behavior. <laughs> a lot of the behavior the mind is up to, not so grand. Right? So, but we can watch that. We can watch it. Because if we can catch it in the mind, then we're less likely to say or to do something based on that. And so this rolls out this whole eightfold path. We have the, the view, the way that we see things, our intentions, our speech, the way that we talk to each other, the way that we talk to ourselves in our own head. Does anybody have the sort of not super kind inner critic? Who's that? Where'd that come from? Well, probably it came from a whole matrix of people. Teachers, parents, coaches, friends. Right? And then our livelihood, the relationship to money. So the eight-fold path is big. I could probably do a whole series on it. But to try to bring it back into practical ways of looking at it is these three trainings. And one of the ways that we can break it down, I think, to make it very understandable or workable is, is that in meditation, what we're trying to do in meditation practice is to recognize and to manage and to liberate ourselves from destructive states of mind. So we have states. We have a whole bunch of states. We have mental states, anxiety, worry, contentment. Um, we have emotional states, anger, fear, sadness, contempt, disgust, shame, joy. And the more that we practice meditation, the more we can remember to recognize what kind of state, what's the state of mind right now? Am I angry? Am I frustrated? Am I worried? Am I hurried? Am I calm? Am I at ease? Am I curious? Am I being creative? What is the, the state of mind? And actually, when meditation practice, that's really what you're accessing by letting go of the plans and the... And, and the memories in the past and the future is you're really arriving into your mental, psychological, emotional state. Mindfulness is about recognizing what's happening in your awareness. So we want to be able to recognize and acknowledge all the wide range of states that we get into. It's also, I found it to be very helpful to recognize what states are the ones that are the most challenging for you or the most destructive. And so that's a big part of it. That's not enough, though. We have to look at the behavioral component. So the ethical or the having integrity is, how do I behave in a particular state? What happens? How well do I relate? If I'm angry, how well do I do in an, in an angry state? A lot of people, that's, they, don't do angry, they don't do anger so well. Fear, sadness, joy. Some people have a hard time with joy. It sounds strange to say, like, no, no, people love joy. Not always. Some people, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do with it. Am I going to lose it? I don't want it to go away. Do I deserve it? Right? So we want to be able to begin to recognize the states that we find ourselves in when we meditate, understanding what are the states that um, are the ones that maybe if you're developing and maintaining a practice, one of the things that can just be practical and 
are useful at the beginning is just starting to get a sense of the type of mind states or the emotional states that give you the biggest challenge and trying to get more information about those and watching, do I become judgmental towards the state? Do I become critical of the state? Do I have more acceptance towards the state? Do I even allow the state to be here? Do I think I shouldn't be? I shouldn't be angry, I shouldn't be scared. Do I feel resistant towards the state? All these kinds of behaviors. In sitting practice, this is, I mean, this is mostly what we're doing, is trying to work with the mind-body process, one moment at a time, one breath at a time. And so when we look at the Eightfold Path, we have the, the meditative, how do we learn to work with meditation states? How do we behave in those states? And then basically what arises out of those two things are our traits or habituations or habit patterns. So if I, every time I get scared, I meet that with resistance, well then that's what's going to keep happening until I can kind of change that way of viewing it. How do I view this? What's my attitude about this? So when we start to be able to use the, these kind of, they're almost like juggling, right? I can't juggle very well, but um, trying to juggle these three things of trying to um, have a little bit more insight into what are the, um, the traits which gives rise to my, my view. How do I view the world? How do I view myself? How do I view the relationship between the two? And one thing that happens is we can kind of improve in all these areas. I become more kind to myself when I practice meditation. I become more kind towards some of my difficult states. And then when I'm out in the world and somebody gives rise to one of those difficult states, I don't have to blast them. Because right? if I can manage my internal anger learn how to work with that more so. That means when I go through life and go through the world and somebody, it's not really safe to say, but say somebody makes me angry, I don't have to become externally focused on like, they made me angry, they did it. It's like, oh, anger. Okay, I need to be careful. I need to be careful what I do and say when I'm angry because I know historically that when I'm angry I don't always say or do the right thing and then I feel regretful and guilty later and I don't want to continue that habit. I want to develop a new habit. And so I think when you, um, regardless of your um, spiritual or intellectual framework for these things, just in a way of becoming just a more healthy person, it's really, really quite useful to be able to use mindfulness practices as a way for you to begin to identify and access what are the psychological, emotional states that you struggle with. What do you, how do you behave when those states are present in a way that cause suffering or actually cause well-being? Are you able to overcome that? And if you're able to overcome that, just keep repeating that. Right? If it causes well-being, if it's useful to you, then just keep doing that. And if it's harmful and destructive and you don't like the outcome, then you know, try to let that one go. Easier said than done. But um, 
that's uh, a good framework for that. So I want to respect the time because we're almost out of it and stop.